When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Good Music Podcast, a show where we discuss artists, songs, and talk about why we love them. New episodes every Monday morning at 9 a.m. Central. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook and become a patron to gain access to exclusive content. And now, on with the show. Another episode of the Good Music Podcast. I'm Lucas. I'm Grant. And I'm Ethan. If you are new, welcome to the show. If you like what you hear, hit that subscribe button. If you've been around for a little while, check us out on Instagram and Facebook. There you can message us and uh, send us who you'd like to listen to next. But if you would consider yourself a connoisseur of all things great, especially music, Go down to the podcast description. There you'll find a link to the Patreon. Become a patron, and not only will you get uh, special exclusive access to episodes early and uh, kind of increased access to us, you get access to the Bad Music Podcast, which is where every week we go and we listen to the six worst songs from the artists that we talk about that week, and we rank them on which one we think is the worst. So if you love good music, you probably also love talking about bad music, so that's for you. But finally, Lucas, you have some uh, podcast news that you've been kind of uh, keeping away from me and Grant until this very moment. Yes, because I wanted to, I wanted to uh, have this be fresh. So um, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Grant had brought to my attention that our Coldplay episode, which has for a very long time now been by and far our most popular episode. Which makes sense because Coldplay is uh, Coldplay is a really a good band. I would say that it's the episode that built this podcast because it was the <laughs> third one that I made. It was still when I was doing this completely by myself. We We really right now only have two episodes that's me by myself because me and my original co-host Justin redid our first two because I didn't have um, ad breaks in there so I wanted to be able to uh, mm-hmm. make some money off those episodes especially because they were at that time also two of our most popular episodes we had done um, but the third one Coldplay was really what started to take off like i did my first two episodes and it's just like yeah i got like maybe 15 listens per Mm -hmm. week and then uh third one coldplay came out and it got about 100 plays the first week so you already knew you had some something magical yeah that's why i was just like oh okay maybe this can be something Mm -hmm. and um it kind of it it took a while for another episode to really match that. Um, 
I would say probably Pink Floyd, which ended up being like our ninth episode, was the next episode to really kind of have a a big launch like that. Uh, but just as the podcast has grown, uh, that Coldplay episode has continued to just climb higher and higher. It's it's been the the clear runaway in our episode, but. Like I was saying, Grant had pointed out that we had gotten a surge, and about that time we were at about nine thousand total plays on that episode. Mm-hmm. And so I was just like, "Oh yeah, you know, whatever." That always happens. But then I went back and looked at the numbers, and we had gotten ten thousand plays in about the span of two weeks. What? From what? So. You are sitting at 19,000 plays. For that one episode. For that like one for which episode. One? The Coldplay? The Coldplay episode. Hmm. And I was like, what? what's happening? How did this happen? And shortly after that, my sister sent me a screenshot that said that um, Spotify recommended the Coldplay episode to her because she listens to Coldplay. Oh, wow. That's cool. And right after that, my dad said the same thing happened to him. Like there's a little there's a little thing in the uh, the 2020 wrapped section where um, it's it, I think it's called on record mm-hmm. where it'll recommend podcasts based on your listening preferences. And because I I think it just it picked our Coldplay one because it's our most popular mm-hmm. one. Just started like sending it out to random people saying, Hey, if you like Coldplay, check out this podcast about Coldplay. That's really cool. And so that I'm sure explains why we got so many and then it has crossed the twenty thousand mark. Oh my goodness. So we've got a twenty thousand play episode. <laughs> Which I'm really excited about. Well, thanks, Spotify. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, thank Spotify. <laughs> I really appreciate. It. So, question is, when when are they going to do that for another one? Of yeah, ours? really. <laughs> well, we're on a good trajectory. Yes, we are. I feel like that that got the podcast in front of a lot of people that have never heard of us before. And I'm excited to see if that um, results in an increased bump. I think I think it's really interesting that um, that it's maybe our most raw, unproduced episode ever that keeps finding its way in front of people. <laughs> I, I feel like it's a blessing and a curse because it's like, man, I would really love for a lot of people's first impression of the podcast to be, you know, with a, with the proper intro and with our new dynamic. Cause I'm hoping there's not a lot of people that hear the beginning of it and it technically counts as a play. And then they go, Oh, this is very raw sounding. I don't want to listen to the rest of this, <laughs> but I mean, there's no way for me to know that it could be that they are listening all the way through it and really like it. Mm-hmm. Time will tell. Time will Can't tell. Can't you look on like the analytics and, and look at, total listen time is that a thing no it won't it won't show me that okay well at least not that i know of but yeah so this is this is um starting a 
pretty cool new era for the podcast where we're getting recommended by Spotify, the one of the platforms that we uh, release this podcast on. So that's really cool. Mm-hmm. That is. And we are very, very close to the 100,000 mark. It's a possibility we may reach it next week. And um, I'm going to be very happy when we get to that, too. Because, again, that was a um, that seemed like an impossible number. Um, even when, Grant, you joined just about a year yeah. ago. That was just we were probably only at like 20,000, 25,000 at that point. Now we have an episode just by itself that's at that. Number. Wow. Yeah, that's true. Uh in a year's time, we've probably gotten seventy-five to eighty thousand plays, which is just uh, mind-blowing to me. So, I I love to say this because it just continually um, overwhelms me every time I think about it. But thank you, listeners, so much for supporting us, for listening to us, for. Um, listening to the music that we are talking about and for continuing to give us the motivation to keep going. Because, I mean, at this point, you know, we're continuing to go up. And, I mean, I probably still would do this if we weren't going up, but it makes it more fun to keep doing (laughs) it when we're going. So, um... I'm really excited about this episode. It's a special one. Uh, it is because this is a um, a listener requested episode. We uh, we brought this up in I believe our My Chemical Romance episode, um, but one of our listeners uh, requested this because it was her uncle's favorite artist, and unfortunately, he had passed away, and one of their last times together was listening to our podcast which is um really cool and um so this episode was originally not on my radar at all and i was just like you know what let's do this let's do this episode and so here we are and boy am i glad Mm -hmm. that i did because I'll get more into this in my final thoughts, but I was pretty oblivious to Bruce Springsteen. Mm-hmm. Same. He was one of those people that I had very much delayed getting into. And Out, outside of um, in the USA, I would say I didn't really know anything right, about Bruce right, Springsteen. Yeah. yeah. And so this is this was a this was a new experience for me. And those episodes are always really fun. I mean, you guys knew how much I enjoyed our My Chemical Romance episode, mm-hmm. where it was a new experience. It's 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 fun because you kind of get to I get to have an experience that hopefully all you listeners get to have, and what at least either Grant or Ethan have on a weekly basis. Because yeah, usually at least one of you guys doesn't know who the artist is or is unfamiliar with them. And this time it was all three of us. Uh Uh-huh. So Bruce Springsteen, a, um, 
a national treasure, if you would. Mm-hmm. He's an institution. I always knew that about him. He's one of those names that even if you haven't, even if you couldn't name any of his songs, you know the name. Mm-hmm. He's kind of like, you know, he's just, he's at that level. Maybe, um, you know, top 15 biggest songwriters of all time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he's a, he's a name that you can't, you know, escape from but at the same time you know it's like all three of us we didn't really know much about him we didn't know much about his music Mm -hmm. how did he he start out so he is from new jersey i would not have expected that you could he could say that he is jersey's favored son I would say probably the biggest act to ever come out of Jersey, either him or Bon Jovi. Oh, wow. Um, that makes sense, actually. Although I could be wrong because I haven't done a full catalog of Jersey. There could be someone bigger. But, I mean, you there's not too many people bigger than Bruce Springsteen. Um, so <laughs> he is from Jersey. He grew up in a very impoverished uh, home and area of new jersey and kind of it's it's he wasn't neglected by his family in the way like i'm i see some similarities between someone like him and Jimi hendrix mm-hmm. where instead of focusing on being a um instrumental whiz he definitely focused on being a great songwriter mm-hmm and but he was like Hendrix in the way that he really from a very early age saw music as his escape uh he started playing in bar bands when he was like 14 years old and never stopped um he never went to college he didn't have that period where you know he was working a day job just to get by like as soon as he started playing when he was like 14, 15 years old, um, he told he said that that's the only real job he's ever had in his life. Mm. That it's just, it's been a nonstop road to the top of rock and roll. He, um, just like many people in the 60s and 70s era, Elvis was his inciting incident. Uh, he remembers that he didn't really care about music at all until he saw Elvis perform on the Ed Sullivan show. And then wow. that was that was the hook. Him. And then just a couple years later, uh, when he was starting to, you know, form his own band, when he was a young teenager, he saw the Beatles. And that that was not just like, Elvis was what got him into wanting to learn music and the Beatles was what got him into wanting to become a musician to, to become a songwriter. Yeah, I what she's saying. yeah. So um, you had, and both of those were Ed Sullivan show. <laughs> so uh, you could say the Ed Sullivan show really sculpted Bruce Springsteen's career because that's what he, um, was chasing after ever since. Mm-hmm. So 
you know, from that point on. And he has always been a rock and roll purist. You know, he's someone that no matter, even though he has had an evolving sound through the years. And what we're looking at in this episode is we're actually looking at a very specific point in his career. This is not a career spanning episode as far as the songs that I've picked. This is kind of coming from from the the beginning of his early classic period before he had his big 80s domination and um, before he kind of really started getting into more folk and country music. And this was kind of like when he was still just like a journeyman rock and roller. Mm. And um, he just, he always has been someone that has asserted that rock and roll is man's music. It's it's music that speaks to the human soul and that it's um, something that is universal. It's timeless. And he has always believed in the power of rock and roll. He's not one of those people that thinks that rock and roll is dead, that it's um, only for the older generation. He's never really, even though he, again, he has changed his sound over the years rock and roll has always been at the center of yeah. it. Just, it's not the rock and roll that, say, Led Zeppelin would play. It is kind of more that, you know, there's, you can you can hear some of that Elvis inspiration in it. Um, you can hear Roy Orbison and Bob Dylan and um kind of more of just those those rock and roll storytellers and you could arguably say that um maybe next to bob dylan there's never been a greater rock storyteller than bruce springsteen we'll really see that on display when we start pulling apart the lyrics on the songs that we've picked he is that's just that's just what he is he's a storyteller and he's using rock and roll as his mechanism to tell stories and specifically, for the most part, he's telling his story. Hmm. A lot of the songs are either directly biographical or um, kind of are a mythologized aspect of his life growing up or the people that he grew up with. Hmm. So he's... He's not like, say, Rush that's going to write these fantastical stories or even fictional stories for the sake of writing fiction. He's always grabbing from his real life. You know, either he or someone he knows has experienced the things that he is writing about. It's not just a, oh, I read this in the newspaper or, you know, oh, this is just a cool idea. Can I, better, I wonder if I could write a story about it. Sort of like it's a used... like a Bond Scott kind of thing. Yeah, like it's it's all real, mm-hmm. and I think that's a very important aspect to his sound is this honesty that just really hits you full on. Mm-hmm. You cannot deny that everything he is singing feels real because it is. Yes. Um, he, uh, there's this, 
And I think that also when you get into his vocal approach, he is not a technically gifted singer. Mm. And that was actually one of the things that turned me off from him for a while. Is I was just like, I just don't like the sound of his voice. But as I started to understand his songwriting and what he was writing about, it started to make sense to me why his vocal style is the way it is. He's someone that, and he realized early on, he knew that he was not a gifted vocalist. He originally wasn't the vocalist. Um, in his original band called the Castiles, he was the lead guitar player. And he had carted off the vocal duties to someone else. When his singer quit, he could never find a steady vocalist. And so he was like, fine, I'll just do it because no one else will. Hmm. And so, but he really tapped into something. He writes these emotionally charged songs. Hmm. And, he, and what he does is he trades vocal perfection for um for emotional punch yeah and this is this is where i see a big similarity between him and brandon flowers yeah i was just thinking that because we had kind of talked about this a little bit in our end of 2020 episode um you know there will be times when brandon flowers sings that he intentionally goes out of tune or, um, you know, just really lets his technical vocal power waver in favor of really just selling the emotion of the song. And um, I think that, well, originally I was, because, you know, I I was thinking about, I was just like, you know what? I wonder if Brandon Flowers was inspired by Bruce Springsteen. And then sure enough, I come across an interview of Brandon Flowers saying after their first album, he discovered Bruce Springsteen and it changed the entire way he wrote. <laughs> I was wondering about that because I was listening to some of the songs on the set today. And I was like, man, that sounds like Brandon Flowers. Like that, uh-huh. like there's little moves. Specific- you can like see like the inspiration, like. Specifically post hot fuss. Mm-hmm. Because really, The Killers is like, you. Hot Fuss is such a solitary record in their discography, mm-hmm. especially the way Brandon Flowers approaches it vocally. And like, he's very more um, emotionally detached in Hot Fuss, and he's more concentrated on hitting the notes correctly. And then immediately on the second album on Samstown, you, you hear this Springsteen-like voice coming through. And it also the lyrical content is very Springsteen from that point on. So yeah, it was it was very interesting to think of that beforehand, and then have, hear it confirmed. I think that that's one of the fun things about this podcast is that I'm starting to think I'm starting to make these connections without having it spelled out mm-hmm. for me, mm-hmm. and then finding out that I'm right afterward. Mm, yeah, that is true. Uh, the pieces are starting to become clearer. Yeah. And that's, that's my hope for everyone that listens is that the pieces will start to become clear to them as well. Is that you'll start to hear things and go, I can hear a combination of these influences 
weaknesses in this singer or in this guitar player. And it starts to become more uh, obvious why they write songs the way that they do. And really kind of helps you connect with the song mm-hmm. a little better because now you're not wondering, well, why did they write like this? When you start to understand the influences coming in, you're just like, okay, yeah, that's like taking it to the next level because it's one thing to know, like, mm-hmm. oh, Brandon Flowers was going through this at this time, and so he wrote the song because of this. But in terms of like music, like, like why did he actually write the song the way he did? You know, mm-hmm. that becomes a lot more complicated because usually you have to do a lot more digging to find all the inspiration. But whenever yeah. you just hear it, it's like it's so obvious. Yeah, and and also again, it's it it helps to um, to like if I were to say, oh, he's very influenced by Bruce Springsteen, we're like, well, we don't know what Bruce Springsteen sounds yeah. like. Then now we can start to go, oh, yep, I understand what you mean. So yeah, so he um, starts a band in New Jersey. Starts a band. Yes, he's he's always. I mean, his first album is called "Greetings from Asbury Park, New Jersey." How old was he whenever he released it? Um, I want to say he was twenty-two when that first album came right. out, which was in seventy-two or seventy-three. And um, first two albums were pretty big flops. He was he he. It was a combination of his he was still developing his songwriting Mm -hmm. which we'll talk a little bit more about that when we get to our um our patreon only worst songs because he actually has a pretty strong bottom Mm -hmm. six but it's the main thing is you can just tell that he's still trying to figure out what his style is um but you can definitely hear a lot of Dylan influence, specifically in his lyric writing. You can tell that he's not going to write, you know, hey, I want to party all night, jump in my car, ooh, baby, I love you. Mm-hmm. Like, he's not going to be your typical pop songwriter. Right from the very beginning, he's going for something stronger and deeper. He's someone that has a mission statement. And it's actually very interesting. There's, there is, once you get to his third album, which his third album is his breakout record, and that's Born to Run. Um, there's a narrative almost that kind of like how we talked about in our Mute Math episode, where they're not concept records, but they pretty much are because he has a mission that he's trying to accomplish with each record. There's a, there's a theme that guides each record. Mm-hmm. Uh, Born to Run. There's, there's really, it's, it's really a great trilogy. Um, you've got Born to Run. That is, the whole album is centered around trying to escape from his small town, because Asbury Park was was a very small. That's town. another very killer's thing. Uh huh. He's trying to. You know that's that's what that means. Born to run, he's he wants to run out of his small life and have a big life. Oof. 
he's trying to leave his small world behind and experience the brave new world in front of him. Um, when you get to the follow-up, Darkness on the Edge of Town, it's actually him returning home and trying to understand the life that his parents and his family lived. He's trying to understand the struggle of the working middle class. He is trying to come to terms with, you know, why, why was their lives hard? And what did they learn in order to persevere? So it's almost Born to Run is him escaping his roots. And um, Darkness on the Edge of Town is him trying to understand his roots. And then The River is him embracing his roots. Hmm. He's, he's now, not only does he understand the spirit behind those people, but he's now connecting with them and figuring out how they fit in his life. And once he hits that point, and he still hits this fairly early in his career, really, even though Born to Run was his big star-making album, he didn't really become a major pop idol until the mid-80s with Born in the USA. He was kind of more of like the the critical darling with a intense cult following because hmm. he didn't, it was, it was on the river that he had his first top 10 hit. And so even though he had, you know, big selling albums, like born to run was a number two best selling album. It was number two on the album charts. Uh, it didn't have any singles that made it past the top 30 weird but when you get to born in the usa he has seven top 10 hits on that album by itself yeah <laughs> and that's a fifth and that's a 15 million selling album which is <laughs> amazing feat by any artist mm. so what about born to run do you think like hit it off for him well um the a big part is that was the solidification of his backing band, one of the most famous backing bands of all time, the E Street Band. The E Street Band is so iconic and so beloved that they have been inducted into the Hall of Fame as their own band alongside being inducted with Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> was, 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 there, was their formation on Born to Run? Like, were they the E Street Band before Born to Run? The, some members were there, but like the the iconic lineup was really set on Born to Run. Let's talk about who's in the E Street Band. Um, there's actually he's got a very large band. Um, right now he's up to three guitar players at the at the time of Born to Run and all the songs you talk about. It's just two guitar players. But eventually he would add a third one and he would add all three of them are legendary in of themselves. It's actually pretty insane. Um, obviously, Bruce is one of the guitar players. And actually, any solos that we're going to hear in this set of six is played by Bruce Springsteen. Wow. Hmm. Um, so 
so you've got him. Obviously, he's singing. Any harmonica that you hear is Bruce. Um, then you have, um, or he's got two keyboard players, one that plays the organ and one that plays the piano. And also his organ will play the accordion depending on the song. Uh, his organ player is Danny Federici, who, um, was one of the original members of the E Street Band. Although he unfortunately died in 2004. So he's not with them anymore. Uh, and then his piano player is Roy Bitten. And he is a monster piano player, as I'm sure you guys have noticed in the songs. Yes. That we do. <laughs> um, you've got Stephen Van Zant on guitar, who is iconic even outside of being guitarist for the E Street Band. He's also uh, been a pretty famous television actor. I don't know if you guys have ever watched The Sopranos, but he's a recurring character on that show. He's also one of the ambassadors for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Wow. He's someone that if you were to see him, you would know him. He's got a very iconic look to him. Um... So he's his other guitar player. You've got um, Max Weinberg on drums, who is also an incredibly iconic figure in music. Um, he became very popular for being um, Conan O'Brien's band leader <laughs> on the on the late show. <laughs> um, and his son is the current drummer for Slipknot. Oh, oh, wow. Berg. That's weird. But kind of And they... It's pretty funny to watch them do a drum off. <laughs> wow. So, Max Weinberg's first record was Born to Run. And even then, he didn't play on the whole record, but he played on several of them because they were trying to... They were in flux on trying to figure out who the drummer was going to be. But as soon as... Max came in partway through recording, then he's been the drummer ever since. Um, you've got Gary Talent, who is another original member on bass. And probably one of the most important members is Clarence Clemens on the saxophone. Okay. And he is also an original member. Hmm. And, but he really didn't become a star member and they didn't start using him in the way that they did until Born to Run. I would say the saxophone is a big reason why that album has as much emotional punch as it does. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, he's that's not a session player that's coming in. Like, he's a permanent member of the band. And also, he's just, he's someone that you see him and he's very iconic looking. Like, he's just got this very um, larger than life uh, presence about him. So, that was the E Street Band, because um, Born to Run was also Stephen Van Zant's. Um, first album with them as well 
again, he didn't play on the whole record because um, he spent 16 months recording Born to Run mm-hmm. because it was a very painful experience for him because he tried to produce it himself and he didn't know how to. <laughs> he did good. So, yeah. Well, it's didn't finish it. He had to get someone to come help oh, him. Oh, really? And that's another... That's another very important person that needs to be brought up because he actually got inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame this year. And that's uh, John Landau. And John Landau started off as the original head writer of Rolling Stone magazine. Hmm. Like when Rolling Stone magazine first started. Hmm. He was kind of like wrote a lot of the big first important pieces. And he's the one that really discovered Bruce Springsteen. Springsteen had done his first two albums and was still unknown. And he saw him play at a club and he went back to Rolling Stone magazine and wrote probably the most iconic a quote from Rolling Stone magazine of all time, which is I've seen the future and its name is Bruce Springsteen, or I've seen the future of rock and roll and its name is Bruce Springsteen. Freeborn to run. Um, That definitely helped get him in people's minds. And then when uh, he was struggling making Born to Run, John Landau just happened to um, come to the studio because he wanted to meet with him and he ended up becoming his producer and his manager <laughs> that'll work and still, like they haven't left so uh, he is really the one responsible for the way Born to Run sounds which I think is another big winning um, factor into why that album was so big um, because he was really trying to go for that Phil Spector wall of sound. Mm-hmm. Which, I don't know if you know what that means, but uh, you guys are, do you guys know who Phil Spector is? I do not. No. He's one of the most, He's he was one of the greatest producers of all time, but now he's one of the most infamous figures in music history, period. Because he is in prison for murder. Oh. He shot a woman in the face with a gun. Okay. So he's, he's, it's, it's been, it had been known for a long time that he was a very disturbed man. And then it was confirmed in the mid 2000s when he went to jail for murder. But he is absolutely one of the greatest music producers of all time. He was really one of the first like producers to be famous just for himself. Well, to where like to where the common person knew a producer's name in the same way that other casual music listeners would maybe know the names of Quincy Jones or Rick Rubin or Mutt Lang, kind of these super producers that even your average music guys know who they are. Uh, Phil Spector was kind of like the first one. He and his call to fame was his iconic wall of sound. 
And so he had mastered the technique of being able to layer instruments together to where you could still tell what's musically going on, but it sounded so big without muddying up everything. Yeah. Hmm. But you had this, you had this, this sense of there's no empty space when the wall of sound begins. Mm-hmm. But there, when you really listen to it, it's not because there's tons of parts fighting against each other. All the parts when you're creating a wall of sound have to be very strategically um, put together because you have to create a full sound without anything getting in the way of each other. And that's what Bruce Springsteen was struggling with he couldn't figure out how to do that without compromising what was being played and so when John Landau came in he understood that and he was just like okay let me show you how to get the sound that you want and he directed him to it that's awesome so um, so yeah John Landau another important uh, part of why Born to Run was so and then honestly it was just when when Bruce really just found his identity as a as a songwriter you can tell that he's he's still trying to figure it out on the first two records and on the third album it just clicks it also helped that um, his record label said that they would drop him if the album wasn't a hit that seems to always the true artist's always produce their big breakout record when it's their last chance. Bruce has said that had Born to Run not worked, he would have gone back and tried to find a day job in Asbury Park. Wow. Hmm. And so it was, you know, it was his last chance to try and um, to try and live his dream because he was just about broke at that point. He was in a bad business deal contract wise and you know, he had not made any money off of anything that he had done. And so this was the album that saved him and pretty much is the reason why he became who he became. So um, pretty much we're staying in that feel. We're looking at, about a five-year period, three albums, 75 to 80. I feel like if you want to understand who Springsteen is as an artist, that you need to start in this period. Because I was going back and forth. I didn't know if I should include some of his stuff from the hit-making 80s period. And first off, I felt like it was going to be too clashing to have those sounds next to each other. I felt like it would hurt the transitioning of the songs as well as um, I felt like it was more important to um, to find the soul of Bruce Springsteen. And not that he didn't have soulful uh, meaningful songs in the 80s period, but it's not as um, integral. Hmm. It's in it's in this classic period that you can see it the most. So I have a question. Uh-huh. So after after Born to Run is a success, 
I guess, how did that change his trajectory in terms of like a lot of time, like with Jimi Hendrix, you know, he just goes from being kind of a nobody to stardom and then he gets involved in some drug stuff or, or like his lifestyle, like has a massive shift, but it, I guess from even from what you were saying about the albums, it doesn't seem I don't know if Bruce Springsteen takes that turn because the darkness of the edge of town album, you said it was more about like returning to the roots rather than like getting further away. Yes. Um, I'm actually glad that you brought that up because I wanted to talk about that. Um, Bruce never had his time in his life where he struggled with drugs or alcohol. He actually was able to stay away from that. He said one of the things that helped him was that his dad was an alcoholic and he resolved after seeing what it did to his family that he would never do that. Mm. Um, and yes, I, I definitely think that um, the, the fact that he was so connected to his hometown, to his roots, he never forgot where he came from. And I think that really helped keep him grounded because he is someone that always um, championed the working class uh, people. That's what his songs are all about. His song like is really the, the, the oral meditation of Heartland America. That's why I was kind of and, surprised that he was from New Jersey, which seems like, yeah, I guess a little bit more. Um, well, New Jersey is not. If you're thinking like it would be similar the, to New York, that would be incorrect. From what I learned from his life, um, it's very much a you know industrial factory driven, especially where he came from. He, you know, his his father constantly was working in the factories, uh, in the steel mills. Like that's just that's that's the the life that he lived. You know, so we're not didn't... talking about the New Jersey that's like right next to New York. We're talking about like no, the, this is he like did not grow up in the big city. He grew up in the small town, hmm. in, in the middle of nowhere. No one of importance is ever going to come through here, town. So you know, yeah, it's not the equivalent. He didn't grow up in some in a place that's equivalent to New York City or any kind of suburb of New York City. So then, whenever he actually got to see the world, was that like a big shock to him? Oh yeah, hmm. he um, he was terrified the first time he went to Europe. And didn't go back for another five years because it was such a traumatizing experience. Oh, well, what happened? He just um, he felt that he was inadequate being on a global stage at that point, and he really started to have a crisis of did he think he was good enough to be playing over there, and um, and also the the audiences were not reacting the way that he hoped he said it was a very humbling experience and he was just like okay i'm not going back there again 
until we have a bigger catalog and I'm more confident as a performer. Yeah. So, um, yeah, but he just, he always, he never let it go to his head. Like he, there was a statement that he said that was really striking to me. Um, One of his producers, uh, Jimmy Iovine, who is another one of those producers that is one of the greatest of all time. He uh, was responsible for um, Tom Petty's Rise to Power and was a big part of U2's early career. Um, He invited Bruce to come to the Playboy Mansion with him one time. And Bruce told him no. And he was like, why not? And he said, because my fans won't ever get to go to the Playboy Mansion. So why should I? Mm, dang. And so that's 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 like his attitude. Because of that, he never, he's like, I always hated it whenever I would see the music idols that I loved coming out of the most exclusive clubs and toting around, you know, their fame and their fortune. He felt mm-hmm. that it always disconnected them from their fans and created this gulf between them, living the life that they never could. Mm-hmm. And he said that he never wanted to do that to his fans. That's great. And so, so he, he like stayed a working man. Yes. And because of that, his lyrics always stayed true to that. So what did he do with all of his money? Um, I think, well, I think he definitely created a music collection and, you know, he's, he, he spends money, but he doesn't, uh, I don't think he flaunts it. I think Uh, that that's his big, he's not, you know, trend setting around the world going, oh yeah, look how much stuff I have. Look, you look at all the places that I can go. He said he said that whenever he does live lavishly, he keeps it very private. Yeah. He's not going for those uh, Instagram likes. <laughs> uh, so. Hmm. So, yeah, I, I really I really thought that that was cool about him. And um, another thing that I found was a very cool tie to. Brandon Flowers is he said that not only did he pick that up for songwriting wise, but that he noticed that character about because he said at the beginning he had aspirations to be the wild, crazy front man mm-hmm. that very con- that was controversial, and he immediately started to realize that he wasn't quite sure that he wanted to be that, and when he discovered Bruce Springsteen, he discovered someone that was famous and successful but wasn't a rock and roll burnout that he could still have a wholesome image about him Mm -hmm. and that's what springsteen always was now of course you know springsteen can be foul-mouthed he can be very opinionated but he was never you know trashing hotel rooms he was never getting arrested for drugs you know he he wasn't ever caught in any big scandals um, he didn't go through multiple wives. He's been married to the same woman for about 30 years now. Waited a long time to get married. And then, you know, his wife is a member of the band now. 
she's his acoustic <laughs> guitar player. So actually, now there's four guitar players. <laughs> That's awesome, though. Uh, and sings background vocals, but yeah, he, you know, he just he he was always a great representative of the average man, and I think that that's what was his allure. And then, just like with Bon Scott, he had this this poeticness about him, even though he was talking about normal everyday things. Like, there's a difference between being poetic, kind of talking about very philosophical, very esoteric things. And he had this poetry about him to where it was very mingled with the real-life places and people of his past. Like, there's a lot of inside references that, unless you really do some digging, you're not going to understand what they mean. Because he's talking about buildings that were on his street growing up landmarks he passed every day when he was a kid mm. it's not just you know pulling landmarks or creating up made up places. like they're all in some way a part of him well well i think that that you kind of prefaced this whole section with his lyrics not being very much like rush at all but in a way like the song that made them big at the at the get-go was working man and and a lot of people lyrically resonated with that because it felt like that described a lot of a lot of people's living situation and so it, it's it's weird to see these commonalities but also people will listen to the music that they feel like they emotionally connect with and I think that that is that's the that's the bottom line for Bruce Springsteen. Yeah, I can I can see that. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's been really cool to kind of just start to unravel this because it's definitely changed my opinion of him and of his work. And I think probably unless you guys have any other questions you would I, like, I think the real meat is going to be discovered once we really start getting into these songs. Agreed. I do have, I do have just a few curiosity clarification things. Go ahead. Um, now you mentioned that he saw both the Beatles and Elvis on the Ed Sullivan show. Did he ever make it on himself? Uh, no, because the Ed Sullivan show wasn't going around oh, at that right. point. Okay. So uh, Sullivan really had lost its relevancy once he hit the seventies. And you made some song or you made some lyrical thematic connections to him and Bob Dylan. Is there any like actual historical connection there? As in like them meeting or them covering each them, other or anything? Them meeting or them being influenced by each other or um, not that I can concretely say, oh, this was a situation where, I mean, I'm sure that they have. And if I dug deeper, I'm, I bet I could find it, but nothing in what I came across. And, uh, and really he, the, the, yeah. the Dylan influences kind of really melted away a little bit. Once you hit border run, it was more obvious on the first two albums. Okay. And I would say that. It was 
because in the first two records, you could almost feel like he's trying too hard to be like Bob Dylan. Mm-hmm. To where I'm listening to, it, I was just like, he's he's trying to write a Bob Dylan song right now, and it's not quite working. Mm-hmm. Where once you have Born to Run, he's really not. You don't you don't hear it go. Oh, that's what Bob, it just feels like him. It feels like Springsteen. Hmm. Um, and then my my final question: You talked about now what was his, what was the name of his band? On the board? E Street Band. The E Street Band. Um, and they got inducted on their own. So what's what's the reason why? Like, did they ever do anything without him? Um, I not that I was really coming across. It felt more like um with it was more of just like it was an a way to honor the e street band as as its own band because again it's almost like they're not considered like bruce springsteen in the way that you would go here's bruce springsteen it's always bruce springsteen and the e street band almost like they're featured but obviously Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. they work on everything together i guess it was more of just a way to say this is, you know, this is one of the great backing bands. They need to, we're going to induct them in separately just to give them an extra um, recognition. Okay. Well, th- those are my pesky questions. I'm done now. All right. So when we come back, we're going to talk about the six songs that we have picked for this episode. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Good Music Podcast. We just finished talking about Bruce Springsteen and his importance to the music world. And now it is time to talk about the six songs for this episode. So for those of you who are new, welcome. And you might be a little bit confused. What's the purpose of these six songs? We just talked all about Bruce Springsteen. Why are we even getting into this? Well, Lucas, could you clarify that for them? Yes, so this is our opportunity to really concretely talk about the artist, everything that we were talking about in the first episode. We can explain all day long, but until you hear the songs and we have examples to look at, you really won't understand. So um, the way that I pick these songs is I'm thinking to myself, what is the best possible first step into Bruce Springsteen that I can give you? So... I'm not necessarily picking what I think are their best or what are my six favorites. I'm not even picking what are the six most popular ones. I'm picking the six ones that are going to introduce you and let you know who this artist is, as well as I'm picking them in a way to where they transition well off of each other, that they have an emotional flow and that they lead to a cathartic experience which i think that this may be one of the most intense cathartic experiences we've ever had on the set yep um it's it's pretty it's pretty heavy on this one mm-hmm. but the way that you can listen to these songs is there's a link in the description of the episode it'll take you to a spotify playlist that has not just the songs from this episode but all the songs from our previous episodes as well. So please 
don't listen to this episode and not listen to the songs. Even if you know these songs, hear them in this order. I guarantee you'll get something new out of it. Uh, you guys can attest to hearing songs that you um, have heard before, but that they come to new life when they're in the playlist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I think we can go ahead and get started with our first song. Um, to me, this felt like the best um, first song that I could come up with, and that's Thunder Road. Yeah, the harmonica and piano intro is really nice. Mm-hmm. And now to know that that's him playing the harmonica just makes it so much better. Mm-hmm. This is the opening track to Born to Run. Okay, so it's fitting. This this was intended to be an invitation to the audience, to the listener, to come along the journey that Born to Run is going to take you on. Like I said before, he didn't really write a concept record, but there are four songs on um Born to Run in particular that kind of do form a narrative and Thunder Road is the beginning of it. The whole song is a dialogue between a a young man and a young woman. It's like um, they're just now old enough to go out into the world Mm -hmm. and Bruce is the, uh, the protagonist asking Mary to to leave this dead-end town that they're in and go have an adventure. It's his invitation to her, leave everything you know behind and follow me into the great unknown. And he's telling her that I can't guarantee that it's going to be a success. I can't even guarantee if anything's going to happen between us. I'm not telling you that I love you. I'm not telling you I'll be with you forever. Forever, I don't know what the future holds, mm-hmm. but we'll never know unless we go. The thing that he says he does know for sure is that nothing will happen if they stay. They might win, they might lose, but it's better than staying here stuck in the same cycle that everyone else is in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So... um you know, it's just, it's this, uh, this invitation, not just to Mary, but to the listener to come along with me. We're going to go somewhere wild and free. Mm-hmm. So I think that as a, as a concept, I think that, uh, it works very well because the the way the song is structured is that it's this constant building towards this um, this driving away because we actually don't know lyrically by the end of the song if she takes him up on his um, request. Mm-hmm. But the way that we know that she does is by the songs that come after, specifically mm-hmm. Born to Run. Oh, okay. Because by the time we get to Born to Run, they are on the run. Hmm. And I just, I think that it's very, I like the detail of him 
you know, it's not cheesy in the way that he's saying, I love you, you know, we'll be together for like, he's telling her straight up, listen, I don't know if I love you. I don't even know if I like you that much. That, that, that line of you ain't a beauty, but Hey, you're all right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, one of the best backhanded compliments in music history. Right. Um, so yeah, so that's, that's pretty much what the story is saying. And it all takes place on her front porch. He's, mm-hmm. he's in front of her house and he has, um, he has his car ready and he's saying, you say the word and we go. And, you know, just kind of the whole, um, the whole question is, is she, is she, is she going to go with him? Which of course we find out she does. Right. But once we get to the very end of the story, we find out that it was, uh, it, it, it does end in them losing. Which is ironic because that's the album. Do you think that he was expecting the album to fail? I don't think he was expecting it to fail. I don't think he thought it would be as big as it was. But I think what he was doing is he was looking realistically at the life of the wandering rock star. Because again, in a way, this is all very biographical for him. He wanted to break out of his dead end town. He saw Asbury Park as a place where nobody does anything of any significance. Again, it's it's after that that he makes the switch and starts to really um, to really appreciate and understand where he comes from. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So, um, in this point, it's there's there's almost a disdain for for Humblebee. Well, at the very end, the lyric is "So Mary climb in." It's a town full of losers, and I'm pulling out of here to win. Uh huh. So He's, that's is his declaration of of intent. But mm-hmm. that's what a great ending lyric. Yeah. And then and then yeah, that that big sax moment comes in. Good old good old Clarence Clemens. Mm-hmm. When. Which yeah, just what a what a um, what an iconic way to start off an iconic record. Yeah. I mean, you can tell that when people were listening to this, that they're like, "Oh, okay, this yeah. is, this is new. This is something new. This is not um, you know what we're what we've heard before." Because he really did a great job of straddling old rock and roll with a new approach. Mm. Because you can hear that old classic rock and roll influence throughout Born to Run, but at the same time, it's injected with this new, um, this new energy and inspiration. Yeah, it's it's really weird that. Now this was 1980, right? No, this was 75. This was 1975. Oh my gosh! Even more to my point, it sounds fresh to my ears. Mm-hmm. You know, here in 2021 now, right? Listening to, you know, a song that was from now 40, almost 50 years ago, 
And it sounds fresh to me having listened to like that classic rock era over and over again for my entire life. There's Mm -hmm. timelessness to it as well that I think cannot be discounted as far as his songwriting and just the, the complex well, relatively, I should say complex structure of this song. You have that, that whole gradual build and then you get to that end section and, and there's really no verses or choruses. Like it's not out like your typical song. Yeah. And it's, there's a level of sophistication that's there, but still very accessible. And you're right. He's very good at straddling the line on on multiple things. I would say. Yeah. And do you now? So in this, you can hear what we mean by a wall of sound. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, because there's you know there's it's really just a song that moves forward. And that was actually John Landau's idea. Originally, it was more structured, very traditionally. And he was the one that came in and said, why don't you make this just this constant and have it be constantly building towards something? Mm-hmm. And that that sax ending was actually originally part of a different song of his that he decided <laughs> would fit better at the end of Thunder Road. Well, it feels really good because the whole song is almost trying to convince, you know? And mm-hmm. so having that building the entire time and then releasing on the sax solo is really nice. And especially to figure out like if she actually takes him up on it. So you can kind of imagine almost like the cinematic montage of like doing the sax solo, like them kind of just like slow motion running to his car, you know? (laughs) Yeah. And doing everything they said in the song, rolling down the windows, the hair going, you know, the hair. Uh Uh-huh. Almost. It would almost be corny to try and display with words her saying, yes, let's go. Yeah. It's so much better to just convey it purely with the music. That's true. By the way, the the title Thunder Road it really doesn't have anything to do with the lyrics. He just saw a movie called Thunder Road and liked the title and just inserted it in. Does, you know, so there's does no he even t- ever yeah. say Thunder Road in the entire song? Yeah, he does. There's one part where he goes, oh, Thunder Road, oh, Thunder Road. He does that twice. And I guess what you would call the chorus. Yeah, I would consider that the chorus. This song, I, love I the- like how the song kind of like builds, though, because like, it's not like, let's go back to the chorus. You know, it's kind of like you just yeah. kind of. There's just different parts put together in a really smart way. Mm-hmm. So, um. I put this. I got. I got to double check my list here. Um, I put this at number four on the ranked playlist. Well, that's really good. That is pretty high. I mean, this is this is lyrically. And you only ranked I, these. These three. So I ranked. No, I did not. I ranked all the way to the end of the eighties. Because at that time, I hadn't fully made the decision that I was going to do just those three records. Because I was still trying to just get a good idea of his discography. Okay. I knew I wasn't going to go past the 80s. So I was just like, just to cover my bases, I'm going to go up to the end of the 80s. And then um, figure out what I want to do after that. And then it was after that, I was like, okay, I'm going to just mainly stick with this. 
Yeah. Well, it deserves number four. I actually, knowing that it's the DAs, this is actually surprisingly high. Mm-hmm. In a good way. You think it's I think surprisingly it high? It. Well, because of all the other okay. hits that were in the 80s. The 80s? You know what? I... I expected them to be better just because they were more iconic and they're not bad at all. But I think that his seventies output just has a bit more substance to it. Yeah. It's, it's got more of that heart. And I think that that, and, and again, you can say that you can't say that one is better for the other, but but it's better for Springsteen. Yeah. Because there's other people where you try and put heart into it and it gets, you're like, okay, you didn't need to do that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, it's It doesn't work when ACDC tries to put heart into their songs. It's just like, just give me that formula. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. But with, um, with Springsteen, it's, you almost have to have it. And so the and the songs, even though they may be great pop songs, they may, you know, be well produced. They may sound good. There's just they kind of don't stack up to his raw emotional songs. It's where he's at his best. But we will, um, when we do another episode of his, we'll definitely look at the other eras because they are they do have great songs. Mm-hmm. All right. So, I mean, so talking a little bit more about this song, and obviously I don't want to spend too much time, but it, this is, you know, our first example of him not technically singing very well, but you don't feel like that detracts from the song. It it almost feels like, like he's, it feels like he is telling a story and, oh yeah, there's a song going behind it. And so he's kind of singing, kind of not shouting, but kind of singing, kind of talking way. And in that way, it conveys a little bit more emotion, kind of like you were just talking about. And so because of that, and and I know this is maybe a bit bit of a rushed question for you in particular, Lucas, but would you possibly in the future consider him to be one of your all-time best vocalists? Or would would the would the technical aspect take away from that enough? No, I think I think he's the same way I would describe someone like Bowie. Mm-hmm. I think that he has done one of the best jobs at figuring out how to best use what you would traditionally call a bad voice. Okay. Because Again, like I said, one of my turnoffs for him for a while was the fact that I didn't like the way his voice sounded. Mm. But it was because I didn't understand why it was the way it was. Mm -hmm. And so now that I do, I feel like um, he's someone that he wasn't going to try and write or play songs that didn't match his voice he was really good at figuring out how do i best use what i have i think in that sense he's definitely one of the best yeah, in the I, same no, that again 
you wouldn't say, oh, man, David Bowie is such a technically gifted singer. I don't think probably one has ever said that. Yet, he's one of the greatest vocalists of all time because Mm -hmm. he figured out how to make his voice work in the best way possible. He understood what it was and how to use it. He just, he made his voice iconic, I think. Uh Uh-huh. And, and he wrote the right songs for his voice. But I don't think, like, obviously, like, we did Aretha Franklin. And, like, whenever we were listening to Aretha Franklin, it was like every song was just like, dear God, like, she is so good. Uh-huh. And with this, it's like, they're good songs, and they're complimented by a voice that complements the song, and that mm-hmm. gives emotion, <laughs> but... It, no, and obviously not throwing shade at Bruce Springsteen because obviously it's it's really good and it is iconic. But like, yeah, I don't I don't appreciate Bruce Springsteen's voice in the same way that we were talking about Aretha Franklin's vocal. Yeah, yeah. Where Aretha Franklin could have sang on anything and it would have, you know, <laughs> it would have uh-huh. been like, wow, that's <laughs> anything that she touched. It would have been good. It, I don't know yeah. if that's the same for Bruce. It's rather I I figured it would take a little bit before we would mention Aretha. I expected that to happen, but I am surprised that you mentioned David Bowie, but at the same time I enjoyed the the Bruce Springsteen set the same way that I did the the David Bowie set. Yeah. It was all it was good it was good songwriting. Yes. I agree. And and, and both of them are great. And I think also whenever whenever we were going through Aretha Franklin, like a lot of her songs were covers, you know, and she did write some, but I think you find like the guys that write their own songs, like they end up almost like their vocal performance rises to the occasion of their great songwriting. Uh huh. Because they true they understand what they need to do in order to set themselves up for success. And great singers, even now, like there's some really great pop singers and they have their A&R department go and buy songs that uh-huh. like their voice would be great on this and then it is and and it just is you know and you right. just that's their formula but for guys like this and like Brandon Flowers you know whose vocal I've come to love it's like same for him it's like he writes in a way that his voice just naturally just rocks and so yeah all right. Well, uh, if you guys don't have anything else, we can go ahead and move on. We get out of this sweet sax solo fade out and into our second song, which is Prove It All Night. Prove It All Night. So this is from the next album, Darkness at the Edge of Town. I wish that these crashes were not in the intro so that someone could have sampled it for a hip-hop song. <laughs> Yeah, because there's probably, I mean, there's probably stems of it somewhere. You could buy the the stems for it. I'm just make something out of that. That'd be pretty sick. Yeah, that's it's a great intro. Now, this is this actually this. I feel like this always happens to me, and this is this is the. You know, in case I have any naysayers from a certain someone on here about my song slot. Okay. He's only ever mentioned it like two times. I now. know. It's like it's become a I thing. wasn't even gonna I wasn't even thinking of that. 
Um, <laughs> this song is actually the second to last song on the album that it's on. So it's not even like an obvious choice to put it second. Mm-hmm. But when I watched my Bruce Springsteen show, this was the second song in the concert they played after I had put it second in the set. I still got some confirmation. There you go. And so I, they did it, and I was just like, oh, yes, I I was right about this. Um, this, um, you had, uh, asked us before we started recording that a certain song that's coming up here better be our favorite song on the set. (laughs) But I think this might be my favorite one. Really? There's, it's the one that has just been like, that has stuck with me. I find myself singing, it's, it's definitely what I think is the catchiest one. The um, I find myself singing the chorus, and I just I love the I love the intro. I love the way it sounds. Um, when I found out lyrically what it's really saying, I found that I really liked it even more um, because it's not just like if you were to just take this point blank, you would probably not be. Um, you know, criticized for saying that this is a sex song. Yeah. But in a way it is, but it's got a much deeper layer to it. So let's go into it. What is it about? So So this this is on the album where he's trying to go back to his roots. Yes. Um, and I, and again, whenever we say going back to roots, I don't mean that musically, Yes. I mean, like, like literally his. Literally pulling from, you know, his roots. So there's there's really two characters, even though there's only one character narrating, there's two characters involved here. So you've got the, the husband and the wife. The husband is saying, I'm going to prove my love to you all night by working all night and providing for us like i'm gonna prove to you all night whatever it takes to show you that i love you and the way i show you i love you is by providing for you Mm. i'm gonna i'm gonna work hard i'm gonna sacrifice i'm gonna do what's hard in order to give you the life that i feel you deserve Mm -hmm. And then what he's saying is because I'm proving it to you all night, you prove it to me all night. Whenever I come home, you prove it to me as I proved it to you. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like this. It's this um, this negotiation kind of kind of saying, you know, in it's in a way it can be cute to kind of just say you know i need you you need me you need me to bring you home money and i need you for the emotional support that you give me Mm -hmm. and so um kind of just seeing that it's not just the sexual side that it's also this you know this determination the the determination that he felt from his own father that was constantly working to better his family's life 
Mm-hmm. Even though, yes, he was resentful to his father for being an alcoholic, he also saw him as a hard worker that was trying. He just got overwhelmed, and that led to a substance abuse that he would eventually beat. But, um, you know, it still made an impression on Bruce as a kid. Um, but he just, he sees that as the, the creed of every working man. His responsibility is to, is to prove it all night at work. And he expects his woman to reciprocate that with love. He would eventually beat that. Was that, would he have done that by this time? I think so. I, I don't have an exact date oh. on that, but but he, again, and he's 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 pulling it specifically from his father's experience because that's who he knew the best growing up. But he's also using that as a as a prototype for any working class individual. Yeah, because this goes as far as um, obviously meet me in the fields behind the dynamo. Uh huh. So and then like. They made the the voices telling you not to go. They made their choices, and they'll never know what it means to steal, to cheat, to lie, or what it takes to live and die to prove it all night. Like uh-huh. even saying like I'm going so far as to like, you know, like I'm doing literally everything that I can to provide, mm-hmm. and you should do whatever you can to provide for me as well. Uh huh. So um... kind of sad. Yeah, and there's there's yeah. definitely there's there's this um darkness at the edge of town has a just sort a of melancholiness. Yeah, but at the same time there's there's always hope. He never he usually doesn't ever write um from a sense of despair that tends to come more from the river. Hmm. But on here, he's more so just really saying that these these are their lives, but somehow they make it through. Yes, their lives are hard, but they always found a way to move on. So when we talk about Darkness on the Edge of Town, and maybe this is more fitting for the song later in the set that's from this album, what uh-huh. what is that darkness that he's referring to? Well, they're, that's explained best on the song Darkness on the Edge of Town, which is the final song on the record. Okay. Um, pretty much that darkness is the, and I probably can't say this completely authoritatively because I haven't researched this song, but from what I was learning other hand, I believe what that is is that there's... Um, there's this fear of leaving what you know Mm -hmm. that it's the darkness on the edge of town that keeps you in town there's a fear of most everyone in the town to to go out into the dark world around them stay in the light so it's like a fear of the unknown yeah, I th- I think so I could be wrong about that because again that's not a song that I researched but but yeah, I just I love the groove of this song. I uh I love the dual saxophone and guitar solo. Oh, yeah. 
Um, I really like the drums on this song. Very simple, yet very um, determined. This, uh, this, is, this was the first album that Max Weinberg really got to put his stamp on it uh, musically. And the really cool thing about this album is that it was all recorded live together. Whoa. This was, this was not multi-tracked with overdubs. Like, they were all in the room together, vocals included, and just and just hit it all in one take. One take? Well, I mean, not not when I say one take, not the first take. But they, but they got a genuine, like, true recording without overdubbing anything. Yeah, or editing, like, splicing tape and... That's pretty impressive. Like, it, it's it's pure. Where'd and, you put this in your ranked? Uh, number 10. That's oh, pretty yeah. good. It's your favorite one, and yet it's it's the 10th. Again, I... I feel like I've gotten good at being objective, at dissociating my brain and my heart. Mm -hmm. I know objectively there are other songs that are better from a pure musical and lyrical standpoint, but I also can't deny the ones that I just know that I like. Yeah, that's true. That is true. So we get another fade out at the end of this song. We do. Mm -hmm. Another sweet fade out. Uh, I know how you feel about fade outs, Ethan. I wonder if I, you're starting to change about them. I, I, I'm neither here nor there on on fade outs. You used to not be that way. I, I used to hate them. Uh, I still kind of am that way. And I hated them because. Um, what do you do like? I I hated them because I was like, what. Like, why are you not just choosing how to end the song? Yeah. You know, I think there's there's times whenever there's a fade out where I'm like, oh, that's cool. Because like sometimes from like a songwriting perspective, mm-hmm. like if you end the song in this like weird melancholy way and it's like if the, if for songwriting purposes, it's like and almost if, if in songwriting, you're like kind of saying like and all this happened and then like nothing ever changed you know I think a fade out is cool because then like the song just keeps kind of like droning on for like all eternity Mm -hmm. kind of thing kind of like a comfortably numb situation Mm -hmm. but then there's sometimes on fade outs where I'm just like you just didn't know what to do so you fade right Um, yeah I also think whenever they were like on tape you know I think it's a lot different because I think like to decide on a really good ending or to like splice in an ending. I don't know. I, I give I give uh I give modern fade outs a lot more uh gripe than I give fade outs from the seventies and eighties. Just because of yeah. the recording technology, but mm-hmm. this doesn't bother me too bad. Cause this is one of those times where it's like in the fade out, like to me a fade out implies that the the spirit of the song is n- is never resolved you know mm-hmm. from a songwriting perspective and so here i would give it a pass because it's like this guy ends up like kind of always trying to prove it you know mm-hmm. but never actually making it out of the situation that they're in 
is mm. kind of how I'm taking the fade out yeah. from a songwriting mm. perspective. But that might, obviously, that might be like so reading into it and putting putting intention where there wasn't originally supposed to I, be any. Yeah, I, think. I don't know though. I feel like with uh, with Bruce Springsteen, you can't count out. That's just always how I imagine fade outs is like nothing changed, you know, like there was no resolution. Whenever there's fade out, I'm like, nothing happened, mm-hmm. which which is cool in this sense. If, if that was on purpose, then that's really good. If it was just because they just wanted to keep jamming out on that, you know, chorus, then that's fine, too. Yeah. Um, the way they do it, they did it live when I watched that show was cool they just they go back to that piano intro oh yeah and, but of course they extend that song to like seven minutes and <laughs> make this big old party jam yeah these, you got massive solo section capability here though uh-huh that's what i found with their live show and the next springsteen episode we do is definitely going to be a live volume two because I think he might be one of the greatest live performers ever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I feel like you say that. Yeah, I feel like you say that about everybody. Live. But like, <laughs> no, I haven't disagreed <laughs> with any of them. I yet. was, I was awestruck watching his concert. I was just like, "How are you making such a good show?" Um, every single one of their songs was stretched to like seven, eight, nine, ten minutes long. Gosh. Every single and every single time they did it in a different way. To where and to where it's perfect every time they did it. So, but I think we can go ahead and move on to the next one, kind of the uh, the defining close to the first half of this set. And I think again, it's 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 good. I think to have two songs that fade out and then have something that has a very definitive end mm-hmm. to kind of close the. F- I, I always like to think of the the first three songs and the second three songs as being two different chapters, but it's the same book. Yeah. Because you've definitely, I always usually try and have a mini catharsis feel by the time you get to the end of the third, because the fourth song I always use is kind of like the change. It's where the set starts to, yep. you know, all the groundwork has been laid in the first half, and in the second half is where we really start to pull the emotion out. And start to really kind of figure out where we want to take it. Mm-hmm. So um, this is this is one of his biggest songs, "Born to Run." I mean, usually, um, if you were to have people name two Bruce Springsteen songs, it's his two "Born" songs, "Born in the USA" and "Born to Run." Yeah. Uh, but I had never listened to this song from start. To- I always knew that famous line, Tramps Like Us, Baby, We Were Born to Run. And I knew how it went melodically. But I had never like taken the time to listen to the song before. And um, I have to say, I was quite happy after I listened to it. Mm-hmm. So um, you've got that big intro and that 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 main riff or i i guess you really can't call it a riff just that melodic line of the mm-hmm. like that's that's maybe one of the best hooks i've ever heard oh yeah i think it's, that was the so, moment 
that was the true moment whenever I was like this the killers were so inspired by this. Yes. yes. It sounded so that that was killers. the true define like if you sped that up by like ten or fifteen BPM, then it's the it's a killer song. Yep, I agree. It's specifically very battleborn. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Battleborn I think is like their ultimate Springsteen send up. They do a great job. I mean, they they. Anyways, but this isn't a killer's set, but but it's no. it, it's just so you know. It just yeah, it's screams. you can't help but draw the comparisons. So, what is this song about? So, this is a continuation of the theme set in Thunder Road. Okay, where now at this point they are on the run, and this is the excitement, the thrill. This is no longer the 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 want to be on the road and the 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 nervousness of it um hmm. this is the thrill this is um this is very much centered around the, that car that we were talking about he sees the car as freedom it's going to take us wherever we want maybe someday we'll settle down maybe someday we'll fall in love who knows i don't know uh, but until we figure it out, we're going to run. We're going to see everything this world has to offer. And along the way, I'm going to find out if love is real. Hmm. Uh, kind of just telling her that in this experience, you know, I still don't know if this is going to go anywhere, but I want to find out. And this is this is just a continuation. This is the ultimate song of getting away from what you once knew. And I think that's why this connected with so many people. This applied to everyone that was looking for an escape from whatever place they were in. And dreaming of a time where they could run. Mm. Yeah. And so... That's that's pretty much what this song is ta- telling. It's 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 from the view of someone, and that's where Springsteen said that he was. It's the reason why he didn't get married until he was much older, is because he felt that he could never stay in one place for long enough. Mm-hmm. He, he's he's not singing from a character's persu- perspective. Like this is his perspective. He felt that he was born to run. Hmm. I do have to mention I love the tone change in like the middle of the song after the saxophone solo. Uh-huh. That's just like bah, bah, and it's kind of in that halftime feel. Yeah. And then yeah, you have that big chromatic moment. I was not, that was like, I wasn't expecting that. And when that happened, I was like, that caught my ear. I was just like, whoa, wait a minute, what's happening? Mm-hmm. And then he does that, that big one, two, three, four, and it comes yeah. right back in. It's a, it's a pretty brilliant moment. Oh, yeah. This, oh. this has to be my favorite of the set. Oh, hey. yeah. Yep. Well, it's just, because of the emotion involved and and our last song was also like a really strong contender but i felt 
myself I was more excited when this song came on than the last song and that was the that was the thing that really gave it away mm-hmm. is I your heart was just telling you yeah I know I song. <laughs> I, en- I enjoyed listening to this and I enjoyed it from start to finish and when it was done I felt I was just I was satisfied and and I had a a pleasant feeling and I wanted to listen to it again and I think that's like you know, go back to basics. That's really what a good song does to you. Mm-hmm. Well, I put this at number two on the ranked playlist. Ooh, number two. Ooh. I mean, yeah, you cannot deny the emotional impact this song has. Um, I've been finding more and more that music has been making me cry. And I don't n- normally cry about anything ever. <laughs> I don't cry in movies. I don't cry when personal life events are sad. But music has been... And it's not because it's like it's making me like ponder about things about my life. I'm just like, I'll cry because I like this music just feels so good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm, it's one of the reasons why I love like coming up with great transitions and having emotional arcs through the sets is because it, I love how it's making me feel. And especially when I listen to these th- first three songs, when it gets to that final Tramps Like Us, Baby We Were Born to Run, and it, that guitar line comes in, back in, I found that I like choked up and cried just about every time I heard it. Mm. Mm-hmm. And you can't deny when a song does that. Right. You know that it's, it's hitting the right moments, the exact moments that it's trying to hit Mm -hmm. it's succeeding in the emotion that it's going for right and then you know this this is one of this is the important song this is the song that started the writing process for the entire born to run album oh wow it's what gave him it the new musical direction going he said that he he just he doesn't know where he got it from. He doesn't know if he remembered subconsciously seeing it somewhere, but he just had the phrase born to run come to him at, at night one time. And he was just like, I can make a song around that phrase. Um, so at the end of the song, were you saying like they, they failed? Was this like the, no, this is, this is still optimism. This is kind of like, um, like, this is really the third song in the story. The second one being Backstreets. Because this is actually on the album. This is the song that opens side two. And um, at this point, like in the previous song, they're they're staying in New Jersey. They're just getting to the bigger, broader parts of New Jersey. And at this point, they're just like, the heck with New Jersey altogether. Let's see the entire world. Hmm. Let's, and then um, the final part of the story, which is Jungle Land, um, takes place in New York City. I also like how in this song, because I thought that this song was originally more of like a love song. Just because I did hear there was a lyric and. 
now I'm like looking at it, but he's like, I want to know if love is wild, babe. I want to know if love is real, you know? Mm -hmm. And then at the very end, and this is why I guess I thought that this was like a, a fail song. Cause at the, in the last part, uh, together Wendy we can uh, we can live with the sadness I'll love you with all the madness in my soul so like you know so he's yeah. he's like kind of like confessing his love or that he would love her He that he's saying he's gonna try, I heard it said once that he has the passion to love but maybe not the patience like I will love you forever but I've gotta love you tonight yeah and it's just, I think that this is, this is kind of the point in the story where he's, he's realizing maybe he can't make it with her, but he still wants to try. He's, he's trying to find out if love is real mm-hmm. because no. And he's saying, I don't know when we're going to get to that place where we'll, where we really want to go and walk in the, and we'll walk in the sun, but till then, tramps like us were born to run. Yeah. It's kind of like, it's almost like he's thinking the future will take care of itself. Let's live in the now. Kind of like, don't ask me those questions about forever. You know? Yeah. He's kind of, you know, well, I love you forever. I don't know is that a good enough answer for you? I, I might, I might not. Um, but until we find the answer, let's keep running. Let's not stop. Let's not go home. Let's not give up. Man, the number two on the list. Mm-hmm. So, um, this song... And another uh, Jungle Land were the two songs that they were really having the hardest time um, trying to uh, get into the studio. This song in of itself took six months to record. <laughs> Why? It was worth it. Because again, they couldn't. He couldn't figure out how to get. He said that he had all these sounds in his head that he didn't know how to um, make a reality. That's the worst. And he said it was, it was, he thought he was going to go insane Mm -hmm. because he had this intense um, vision, but he didn't have the ability to explain what it meant. Like, or like how to um, achieve it. Right. And so he was just, he was becoming more and more frustrated because he couldn't, um, he couldn't recreate what he was hearing. That's, that's one of those things about those synth guys that are really good at making synth sounds. It's like they have that ability to take what's in their head and turn it into something that they can play. And it's like, that completely blows my mind. And I mm-hmm. I wish that there was some way to do that, you know, with with like every instrument, because it yeah. was just well, the explosion of music, like like this sort of thing wouldn't happen anymore, and and it would just be like uh, I don't know. Well, I think about that a well, lot. I mean, but. That's what a, that's what a great producer is for, right? Right. The a great producer is someone that 
that knows how to get the music out of the artist's head and onto record. That's what that's why George Martin was so invaluable for the Beatles is that they had maybe more wacky ideas than anyone else in music history as far as ooh what if we did this ooh what if we did that and had they not had a George Martin that was so brilliant at figuring out how to make it a reality probably a lot of their visions would have gone um unfulfilled mm-hmm. It takes, it's not enough to have the idea. You have to have someone that knows how to make it a reality. Someone that problem solves, someone that knows the technology, someone that has the creativity to think outside of the box. Mm. And um, even someone that can um, almost read their mind when perhaps maybe they themselves can't express in words they know what they're thinking mm-hmm. and that's and that's a reason why John Landau was so important for Bruce Springsteen is that once he came in he knew how to get um, Bruce's vision onto record and this this he started the process before he found him Yes. So that was kind of part of the frustration, I guess. Uh-huh. Because he was had already been working on the record for quite a while before uh, Landau came into the studio and said, hey, you want some help with that? Mm-hmm. I, I, I think I can help you. Mm-hmm. And, and at that point, it's like, please. <laughs> yeah. Yes, please. It's like anything would be better than this. Mm. Because especially since he knew this was his last shot, I'm sure that he was becoming very desperate. Mm. All right. Well, on that. Move on to the next one. I think we should move on. Yes. Yes, we definitely have a, a shift in atmosphere here for our fourth song. The River. Back to um, this this is close to my favorite song this song the more I dug into it the more it really tore me up mm-hmm. I think I think it's my favorite Springsteen lyric for sure so go through that then so this song was inspired by his sister it's pretty it's it's not completely biographical of her life but it's what gave him the inspiration to tell this story so his older sister virginia um got pregnant when she was still in high school and mm-hmm. had to quickly marry her boyfriend and settle down into a domestic life she you know, had her own dreams of what she wanted to do. And obviously that all disappeared because she had to take care of a kid and, and work to try and survive. Mm-hmm. And um, they're actually still married today. So the relationship worked out. Mm. But, you know, it made things very hard for the both of them. 
being, you know, barely of legal age, now trying to um, to survive in this world and take care of of a child. And so the river is pretty much just the story of two young people who have all of these aspirations and dreams, specifically uh, the narrator, the man. Mm-hmm. Um, starts off the beginning of the song saying, I come from a small town where the expectation is that you follow in your family's footsteps. But I don't want to do any of that. I want to break free. But then I got my, my girlfriend, Mary, pregnant, and I became stuck where I was. And the river is the symbol of their love. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a literal place and it's a symbolic place because it's the river where they fell in love uh, before they dropped the line of she got pregnant. The river mm-hmm. was where they would go down, they would swim, and where they it's where they fell in love. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then when they have to quickly have a shotgun wedding. That's where they, after they go to the courthouse, you know, they, he talks about in anguish that they didn't get to have a wedding. They didn't get to have the beautiful planned moment. Mm-hmm. They just do what they need to do in order to survive. For my 19th birthday, I got a union card and a wedding coat. That's a great lyric. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but he says that night we went down to the river because it was still mm-hmm. a place action for them it was kind of like because the baby wasn't there yet they could almost there was there was still like this this optimism because you know the reality hasn't fully set in yet mm-hmm. I was looking at it like like probably not, I mean, not in an overly sexual way, but like I was imagining that it was like it was down at the river where they like conceived their child, you know. Well, could be. And then on their wedding night, when it, like they would have had like an official honeymoon, they went back to the river. And it, it could be, um, you know, the it's it's a place of sanctuary for them. It's yeah. a place. And it's their go. place. It's their place exactly. But then you get to the third verse, and that's when things start going bad. He's he's struggling at work. He's not making enough money. I can't get a good job on account of the economy. Um, I pretend that it um, that everything's all right. She pretends that she doesn't care, but I know that. It's just he knows it's destroying him. He knows that he's becoming more and more miserable, that his life is not planning out the way that he thought he would. Um, and he knows that she's becoming like you can they're starting to drift apart. And he's he goes down to the river one more time, hope because that's always been the place he goes down to to renew their love to strengthen their love but now the river's dry mm-hmm. and i 
I think that that can be figurative saying that their love has run dry. Also, I think that you also have not just this love story, but this, this feeling of losing a dream Mm. because you have that the one part of the song where it extends beyond the narrative and goes philosophical Mm-hmm. Um, you know, talking about what is a broken dream? Is it, you know, is it a lie or is it something worse? And just, you know, talk, like how how does a man deal with the fact that, you know, what they wish that they would do, they will never be able to do. And that there's so many working class people that, surely had greater aspirations for their lives and their lives lead nothing like it. Mm-hmm. They end up, you know, in the same place that they were always told they would end up. They thought that they were going to break away from their small town and instead they're now trapped there forever. Mm-hmm. And um, to me, that that resonated because you know i've had my moments where i've i've had my dreams and i felt that i could feel the moments when they were disappearing and it can be pretty crushing mm-hmm. and that just that connected to me pretty yeah. pretty seriously to where i was just like I understand that line. I know what it means to have a dream that you feel might never come true. Mm-hmm. And it's this it's this soul-crushing feeling. And that's what he's getting across in the song. And I think that what it is, it's it's the dying of the dream that is sapping his love. Because he's now realizing that because he... I guess you could say because he did, he lived in the moment and didn't um, look to the future. He made a, a a mistake in the present that cost him his future. It was almost like a crime of passion. Uh huh. And so now he's wondering: Is she the reason why? You know, had I had I never fallen in love with her, maybe I would have gotten to live the life that I wanted. And then, yeah, it just kind of ends. It, and it ends. There's no happy ending there. Now, the good thing is that in real life, there is a happy ending. They're still married. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But you that's right. I think this that this story... song is less about. Like, yeah, he took a way more uh, philosophical approach with the ending. Yeah, like it's, you know, it's the 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 vehicle of the story is this love story, but the real message is the is about losing your future, losing your dreams. Because because reality very harshly steps in. And we get a fade out. Yep. In this instance I feel the fade out works very yeah. effective. Yeah, it's purposeful. Yeah. So what do you guys think about this song? Well, now it means a lot more. Before, <laughs> whenever I didn't know what it meant, I was like, musically, it's it's pretty, like, there's not a ton of musical change, you mm-hmm. know, until we get to, like, I guess, the 
I guess it's technically the bridge, but it feels more like a continuation of like that that last verse, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but until then, everything's pretty much just kind of riding forward, just just trucking along. And I was like, eh, you know, it is what it is. But now knowing the lyrical content, I don't feel like the song has to be too showy. It's more of a singer songwriter thing. Mm-hmm. The, the lyrics are the focus and the harmonica solos I will say like it's very I mean he's a great harmonica player he can he can make it feel very bluesy and sad mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah he, he is he is a great um, harmonica player and I and, feel like because um, we all I guess Lucas and Grant, have you guys? Do you guys feel like you like understand small townness? Like, did you guys grow up in a small town? Uh, no, I, I didn't really grew up in a small town, but I've lived. I've lived in a small town, but I didn't grow up in one at one point. So I I grew up in a teeny tiny town. Like I moved it to Tulsa whenever I was like in the fourth grade, pretty much to live in Tulsa, and this was like a big city to me. Mm-hmm. So like. Uh, going back to how he like connected with his roots, like him, him going down to the river with his like love interest, like that is a very common like country thing to do, you know. Mm-hmm. Like that's mm-hmm. a really common like like that your town has nothing to do except for like go on go onto the river, you know. Like that's the the thing. Mm-hmm. So another instance of like just really good connected songwriting to his, you know, he never got too big to understand like what was going to hit with his audience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I put this at number five on the list. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to guess that number three is not on the list, not on this list. And it's it not. Be, it will be on the next episode, most likely. Um, maybe. Okay. I don't know what the next episode's really going to work look like. Oh, okay. All right. Um. No, no. So said that this song was from the perspective of his sister's husband. Yes. And so when he has the line about her brother's car, that's his car. That's funny. Uh, <laughs> no, he, he's no, talking the brother's he's car. About oh, his, his, the, his brother's car. Brother. Uh, I, thought she, I thought he said her brother's car. Okay. Pretty much the point of that lyric is to show that he was, you know, that really people were so poor that the individual, each kid didn't get their own car. You oh. typically, older kid was got to have the family car i was looking at it like um a way to symbolize how young he was that he Mm -hmm. couldn't even drive his own car there Mm -hmm. yeah i mean that's pretty much that's pretty much yeah the goal there's it's it's just that's common of small town you know not when you're when you're growing up not every kid in the family is going to get a car on their 16th birthday right Probably, you know, whoever's the oldest kid's going to have the car and everyone else is going to have to 
you know, share it. Right. All right. So I think we can go ahead and move on to the next one. All right. So this one is Streets of Fire. And um, I am very interested to, I guess, from a musical standpoint, if I'm putting all the cards out on the table, not in a pessimistic way. But the first time that I listened to this song, I I didn't I wasn't connecting with it and I didn't really like it. The and and I think it's also because the we talked about Bruce Springsteen not being like the greatest vocalist of all time. Mm-hmm. You know, I really felt that on this song. Yeah. Um and so I, I the more that I listened to it, the more I warmed up to it. Oh yeah. Yeah. But I'm this, really this interested to dive into like what it's about because that usually helps me connect a lot better. Yeah, um, this one was really hard to figure out. This is kind of much more of a poetic song. Like I looked through the lyrics, and this is this is more of a deep cut that I heard, and I actually immediately liked this song because I I got the emotion that it was trying to portray me. Like mm-hmm. this, at this point. I was understanding what a Bruce Springsteen song needed to be. And I was just the pure emotion of the song. I feel like just smacks you in the face. Yeah. And really this, and again, this is the song was for me, the perfect lead in to where I needed the set to go because it's, 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 you're taking the more somber emotional heft of the river and then you're giving a much more raw, visceral emotion for Streets of Fire, and then it's all going to collide both simultaneously in our final song. Hmm. Um, so that was what initially drew me to the song. I was just like, this is this is exactly the song that I need right here to get us to our final song. And I remember I just when he starts really on the second verse, just like really pushing himself vocally. Um, it it reminded me again a lot of something that Brandon Flowers did a lot on Sam's Town. Again, they're they're they have two different starting positions vocally. Like obviously Brandon Flowers is much higher range singer. Mm-hmm. He's a bit more like I I won't say he's classically trained because I don't know if he actually took, but like you know he's he's got more of that approach vocally that starting position where Bruce has a much more rugged, uh, you know, weathered style to his singing. Mm-hmm. But to me, this was a situation where the emotion of the song had to trump any kind of vocal ability and to me I think that this song nailed perfectly Mm -hmm. so that's that's what really resonated with me on this I felt that he toes the line perfectly here the song the song does what it needs to do but I 
I had trouble really discerning, like, specifically what this song was trying to say. I do know that he wrote this song about Elvis because it was written the same year that Elvis died. Mm-hmm. And he has said that he wrote Street of Fire for him. But I was looking at it, I was just like, I'm not quite sure where I'm seeing that connection. Mm-hmm. This was this was a one that was it was again it was really hard for me to discern what was really going on. Um, you know, I can I can see some connection of, you know, this you know, the street life, maybe the the streets of fire are you know, from the perspective of the the homeless that are living on the street. And um they they're just the, the streets are hard the streets are brutal and that's what he's talking about but i'm 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 sorry to say that i'm quite not sure what's going on on this I, song after reading through the lyrics like i i think i have i think i have an idea okay present it to me so in the first verse he's saying when the night's quiet and you don't care anymore you know and your eyes are tired and there's someone at your door and you realize you want to let go and the weak lies in the cold walls you embrace eat at your insides and baby I ain't no liar I walk streets of fire I think that he's saying that he whoever's from he who being whoever is it's from the song's perspective is from I think like you imagine someone that's like like by himself at night and then I think I think whenever he says and you don't care anymore, like that feeling of like melancholiness. Mm-hmm. I would even say like depression or like even almost suicidal. Which he did struggle with that. And then this says like in your eyes are tied and there's someone at your door. I think that means death. Mm. And you realize you want to let go. Like you want to die. And the weak lies in the cold walls you embrace, eat at your insides, you know. And I, mm. so, and I think whenever he says, I walk streets of fire, it means that he's like streets of fire, meaning like the, like he's not in hell, but it's streets of fire, you know? Yeah. It's, it's hell outside. Like, like he's walking streets of fire, even though he's not in hell. Like he's like, it's like, walking towards it yeah and then the okay. second verse is now i'm wandering the loser down the track and i'm lying but babe i can't go back because the darkness because in the darkness i hear someone call my name you know and, I... and i'm strung it on the wire and i think he's saying like oh i could go back and i could like be different but he's like but you actually can't you know i actually can't go back like i'm already too far down the road Mm -hmm. and then in the last verse he's like i live only with strangers now i talk only to strangers now i'm with angels that have no place don't look at my face don't come around me i think that's just like he's embracing his his state and he's just isolating himself from everybody waiting until he dies Hmm. well then yeah then that matches the vocal intensity that he's aiming for there which is very sad yeah but yeah definitely makes a lot more sense does that kind of as you start to unravel that is that kind of starting to 
change the song for you at all? Yes. Again, like uh, it was my first listen. I, I there are certain songs I always end up coming around because we only we only do good music on the podcast until the after hours. But <laughs> now it's to the point where I listen to a song and I and I pay attention to my ear. Like like I'm just like, ooh, my gut reaction was that I didn't like it. You know. And as I was listening to it more and now after I've kind of like read the lyrics and like looked into, you know, into a bit more in depth, it does do good. Good songs are ones that convey the emotions properly. Yeah. Uh, Grant, what do you think? I just, I think that when I, you know, originally listened to this song, it was, it was all right. It was kind of one of the more, um, I don't want to say forgettable because I could remember it, but it, I I was more willing to like pass it off as being like, oh, this isn't, this is like the weak song of the set. But I don't know. Hearing hearing Ethan's explanation and then just me listening to it, you know, over and over and over again, right in preparation, I kind of started to. I found the weird vocal you know expressions that he would do in the song kind of endearing and i thought Uh it was something that like even just artistically even if there's not really like you know that much of a reason specifically why he's singing this way at this time you know i i still found it kind of cool just to listen to and i think that you know it's intriguing to yeah. kind of hear someone just completely go for yeah, it. Yeah, and, and also it's just like good music will become better the more you listen to it, but bad music mm-hmm. will become worse. And it doesn't really matter where you start, <laughs> right? It's just is it trending upwards or downwards for you? That's really how you can tell what truly is a good song. Yeah, well said. In in my opinion, but yeah. Yeah, um I I had an instant connection to this song. I kind of, I heard and I was just like something's happening here. Mm-hmm. Like this this is meant to be a a big emotional cathartic song. Mm-hmm. Um but this is definitely, you know, my main thing is this going to set us up for the grand finale and i think we can go ahead and and get to that because this is gonna this is a song that's gonna take a lot to get through oh yeah and that's jungle land Uh, this song is the catharsis on this song is absolutely in insane ridiculous levels yeah like you know, I think that this is one of the strongest catharsis moments that we've probably ever had. This is, this is, I I want to say this is the longest song he's ever made. Because it's almost 10 minutes long. Yeah, it's a big one. It's, it's huge. And he did write a lot longer songs towards the beginning of his career. Just because he would write these kind of, you know, these sweeping stories, but none of them really ever got as long. Like, you know, it was more like he would write maybe a, a six or seven minute song. 
but um here he's you know he's he's going on almost a full 10 minutes Mm -hmm. you gotta really have a great story to keep people intrigued for 10 minutes when it's um you're not relying on on complex instrumental passages when it's very lyric driven but i mean he pulls it off here and this is the ending of the album born to run so this is this is the this is the grand finale of that album as well Hmm. um this song is another reason why born to run took so long they worked three days consecutively with no breaks on just the saxophone solo (laughs) (laughs) because Bruce Springsteen was very particular that he play every single note the way that he envisioned it in his head wow and so he would not let him stop and the crazy thing was because they were so behind on getting the record done they already had the tour scheduled and the album wasn't even finished yet. They said that they finished finally tracking the solo after three days, no sleep, no breaks. And as soon as they were done with the solo, they were like, okay, that's it. They packed up their stuff and went to go to their first show of the tour. (laughs) That was how down to the wire they were at that point. Wow. And so, um, you know, they really, this was kind of like this and Born to Run were like the two songs that were like the riddles that they couldn't crack until John Landau came in. And on specifically this one, he was, they were, they were overplaying because again, they didn't know how to get that wall of sound. And so they thought that that meant that everyone's just got to play a lot. And when Landau came in, he was just like, no, it's it's not about um, how much you play. It's about how much is playing. You have these simple parts. But what you do is you layer them on top of each other, and that's what gives you your sound. Mm-hmm. It's not about you have to fill every single part of the space with unique playing. Sometimes you just got to have eight tracks playing the exact same thing and that's what gives you your bigness. Yes. Yeah. Hmm. So, um, and I don't think it's probably too much of a secret at this point to say that this is the number one song on the list. <laughs> when I heard, as soon as I heard it, I was like, oh, I don't think I'm going to hear another song of his that's going to beat this. This is just this. This is a masterpiece. And a I, master- will, I, I will show my hand and say that right, right at the beginning, whenever we first got on, before we started recording, I, I pseudo threatened Lucas and Grant, and I said, "If Jungle Land isn't your favorite song, I will need the best explanation why." Which I have been given those great explanations why on the other songs, but it's just so good. It is good. And it it flows like like a symphony in a way, but 
but it doesn't have that you know that gradual increase over the course of the song it like it ebbs and flows like a like a mountain range yeah and i think that Mm -hmm. that's something that's very important for a lyrically driven song that's 10 minutes long is you're right you can't you can't rely on long instrumental sections like you do with dream theater like dream theater writing a 10 minute long song is par for the course but for somebody like bruce springsteen it's like that's a big deal because the rest of our set's been like four minute five minute maybe we have one five minute song and whenever um Whenever you guys were first listening to this, did you see the time and go as it was starting? Oh gosh, this is a ten minutes. Yes, but when it got, to, I when it got actually, to the end, I was like, wow, that was not. That didn't feel like ten minutes. This was one of the first. Um, this was one of the first times that I listened through the set. Um, I guess more passively the first time. And so I, I like just turned on the first song and just let it roll through. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so whenever I got to the song, I was like, oh, this is awesome. And I remember because I was just kind of like, I was in um, kind of our house. We have kind of like a playroom office kind of pseudo thing. And I had it going on my computer in there as I was kind of like doing some other work. And whenever the saxophone solo hit like in like that at the halfway point i was just like wow and it yeah well and the saxophone solo is like it's not just like an eight bar saxophone solo you know it's, it it's like a whole movement of, of the song yeah it's it's the thing that really worked so great about this song is that it takes so many unexpected turns i look at like there's like three arcs in the song it's like there's Mm -hmm. the first half of the song then there's the saxophone solo and then there's like the ending of the song yeah and after the saxophone solo was over i remember i was so enamored with the song because because it's like it's not one of those songs where it's like whoa this is two songs in one song i thought it was two like you look over i'm just like the song i i know the song's not over and i look over and i'm like it's been like seven or eight minutes and i just look i like stop what i'm doing and i like go back over to this the computer and i look at it, i'm like this is nine minutes long <laughs> but i didn't care yeah yeah, I remember. Yeah, the first time I heard it, I was I was just like, okay, yeah, this is pretty good. I've heard of this song. I know that this song has a big um, stature to it, but y- you know, you're listening to it right before the set, and you're just like, yeah, this is pretty good. You know, it's sounding like your normal Springsteen song. And then, yeah, that that moment the sax starts, it just. It, it really does feel like it comes out of nowhere because it's not leading up to it, really. It's just the song is almost like business usual, and then all of a sudden, boom, it hits you. Mm-hmm. And from that point on, the song just, like, seriously elevates. And you're just like, okay, something special just happened. And it's from that point on that you're listening to and going, oh, my gosh. What... What a beautiful song. And then from that point on, the fact that it goes down after that, it has that low, like, 
you know, 30 to 40 seconds of almost ambient noise yeah. before the lyrics come in. And then when it, it also caught me by surprise when it like goes right back up at the very end. And it has that last moment of just big epic grandeur. And he does that howling pain. Um, and I was just like, oh, okay, yeah, this is this is the song. This is this is his his master stroke. Mm-hmm. I so it's this. It's I I like that. It kind of it's it does take you by surprise. You're not expecting it to take all of the turns that it takes, and every time it does, it's the perfect t- uh, turn. Right. Exactly. And and you do mention kind of like those howls at the end that it's like he was able to pull that off starting with his, you know, self-described, you know, for lack of a better term, bad voice. He was still able to have that range and be able to use it effective emotionally yet another time. And I think we've seen that for all three of the songs on the Born to Run album on this on this set. Mm-hmm. That that maybe that was when he when he figured it out. And 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 you did say that in the first section is kind of like those the two albums before that not so much, uh, but he really did figure out this album. And I and I would agree. And. Ethan, you are right. This song is rather like uh, structurally complex. Uh, maybe not technically very complex. The piano playing is definitely through the roof, but uh, you really do have to listen to this one. And I always stress that at the end of every part two, you know, definitely go listen to the songs. But there are some things in, especially towards the last section of this song that you can't really use to describe in words other than things like crescendo and accelerando and free form and stuff like that, that, that Bruce Springsteen as a songwriter uses to his advantage to the max. And that's, it's incredible. So did we talk about what this song is about? No, that's where I was going to go. Okay, cool. Because this is kind of the uh, the conclusion of our little story that's been evolving on Born to Run. Right. So at this point, um, our two lover characters have uh, made it to New York City, which is, you know, really where if you want to make it in life, that's where you want to head to. And... Um, and you know, that's, that's, that's what it means by the jungle. You know, it's, it's the same mm-hmm. jungle that Guns N' Roses sings about, you know, where you are, you're in the jungle, baby. Mm-hmm. They're talking about the concrete jungle. This isn't the, the actual jungle. And, um, you know, it starts off They're They're looking for the nightlife. They're looking for something dangerous, something exciting. Why do they? I have. A, sorry to interrupt. Why do they? Um, they call the main character now the rat. Um, I th- because I think that what this is is 
they're it's meant to be something that can stand alone by itself but it's it's one of those things when you put the stories together it's kind of showing you this this narrative although i why he switches over to having this new character named i'm not completely sure because it makes him seem really like skeevy you know because it's like the magic or the the rat and the barefoot girl you know Uh uh-huh anyways it could be that that's what he's turning into because you kind of you kind of feel that later in the later in the lyrics where he does feel like his his um his uh i guess desire for hitting the big time is like an all-consuming thing now Mm-hmm. and that's and that's kind of where it gets to is that he um because because we know from the very beginning of the story in thunder road that he has aspirations of um making it in the music because he talks about he's got this guitar and he's learned to make it talk yeah so it's you know he's that's again it's it's he's being very autobiographical here and he um is is really recounting in a way his own life now what happens here is they they go to the they go and find the nightlife they they see this this other world this exotic world that they've never thought that they would experience before they see all these these marvelous things and um really whenever we hit the saxophone solo that's the finally the moment where they consummate their love for each other mm-hmm. because at this point still you know it's this there's a lot of illusions throughout the previous songs that he's not looking at her as a sexual conquest mm-hmm. that she's more meant to be a companion so that way he's not on his own that he has someone to experience all this with and if it turns into love cool but that wasn't his initial intent i i saw some people saying that the fact that he keeps inviting her to the front seat rather than the back seat is an indication that he's looking for a partner and not a conquest hmm but at this point, now that has escalated into something physical. And that's what that saxophone solo was supposed to imbue is the sexual tension that is now as they um, as they engage in their activity mm-hmm. in some flea bag motel. And that's what that whenever it comes in that 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 moment of of relief is meant to you know just that 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 feeling afterward of just this this calm and uh sereneness but once it's almost like once he has gotten her all of a sudden becomes disinterested and he leaves and 
It says that he's killed, gunned down, but I don't think that that's a literal death. I think it is. I it talks about an ambulance pulling away, and I think I think the the met probably narratively it is, but I think what he's the 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 message he's trying to portray is the um, the choosing of the wandering life over love. Hmm. I could be wrong, but that was what I was getting out of it. Um, but you know, in a in the literal narrative sense, yes, he he does leave. He's shot down, and you know this exciting world that he once um, craved and wanted to be a part of and see pays no attention to him as he's carted away. Because that that's what I was feeling is like. He he gets the girl, he goes, and he gets shot, and no one watches when the ambulance pulls away or as the girl um, shuts out the bedroom. Like she, like even she, like kind of just forgets about him, you know. Mm. And then it kind of goes on the narrative where it's like, um, like the poets down here don't write anything at all. They just stand back and let it all be is such a great lyric because he's pretty much just saying like the people here like don't write anything original. They just record what they see and it's good enough. Yeah. And I think it was interesting. The like no one watches as the ambulance pulls away, not even the girl, you know, I think that Um. I think that was more of a look back at like, you left your hometown where everyone knew you and then you died in a place where no one cared about you. Yeah. It's a very tragic end of the story. And then, yeah, it just, and then it just, it all cascades in that final burst of energy. That, that piano just all of a sudden swelling to that huge, um, moment and then of course his screams of of pain and sorrow uh i think is just what an ultimate cathartic moment mm-hmm. and, but and then and that and then that's the end but like but but why you know what i mean like why would he be I honestly so... I honestly and and we talked about this before I I don't think that Bruce Springsteen thought that this album was going to I thought I think that Bruce Springsteen was was like thinking that he was going to not make it like he, if he already had plans to just go back to his city you know and just get a job like everybody else after this because the pressure was on. I I have looked at this jungle land out because Im- imagine you're Bruce Springsteen. You've written two albums and the studio says, hey, you, we are giving you one more shot or we're dropping you and you'll never make it ever again. Yeah. You know, he's writing a fantasy story of him leaving his town and making it, you know, to where he wants to go and then at the end he ends up not even making it you know 
and mm-hmm. even in his own fantasy, he doesn't make it. You know, kind of like it's it's this it's this pessimism. I, no, I think that that story, and especially ending with Jungle Land, I think was his way of coping with the fact that he thought that he wasn't going to make it. I think in a way he was like, even if I did leave and I did make it, I wouldn't make it. And I think Jungle Land was him coming to terms with the fact that like, almost like he was like, if this is the last album, it was like him coming to peace with the fact that he wasn't going to make it. Yeah. Like it, like that, like his dreams getting shot down in, in, in this fake New York city landscape was him kind of shooting his own dreams very interesting you because like like why not if he really thought he was going to make it he would have written a a story about the person making it then he wouldn't have had a backup plan Hmm. like i think that he was like you i go on this journey and all this stuff happens and then like i die the end and then I think he was just going to put that on the shelf and be like, I tried my very best. And then he was going to go to work. Mm-hmm. And I think he lived out the fantasy that he ended up achieving. I think he lived out the fantasy of what he wanted to do through his songwriting and called it a day, never knowing that he would actually blow up the way that he did. That's really deep. Yeah, it definitely did surprise him by how big he got after that record came out. And that's almost why I think he's so humble is because I think that he had already emotionally come to terms with the fact that I think he appreciated what he had because in his brain he had already disconnected from needing it to live a happy life. Uh Uh-huh. And so, unlike other people where it's like, I'm going to make it to the big time, and then they do, and they're like, I knew I would always make it, you know? Mm-hmm. I think he was like, I thought that I wasn't going to make it, and I did. And I think coming from a place like that is, in a weird way, it's like a, a place of, like, more resoluteness. Yeah. And you also, you, you appreciate it a little more. Because I, I, I mean, because obviously now hindsight 2020 we look at this record and it's like oh that was his breakout album right but to him i mean like we're on this podcast and and we're about to hit a hundred thousand listeners you know but lucas didn't know that we were going to hit a hundred thousand listeners whenever he did the third episode right you know nope even now i mean we could be looking back on this episode and we could be at a million you know Mm -hmm. later but we don't know and so i think him having the 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 figurative record label gun to his head. I think in his mind, he was like, this is the last record I'll ever make. Hmm. And, and I'm going to write, write a record about a guy leaving his hometown and, and trying to make it. And then at the end, he tragically loses. And I think that almost subconsciously, even he might've just written that because he thought that he was going to lose. That's pretty, uh, that's pretty deep. Some, some. I'm not the only one that brings the deepness. Yeah. Let that be known. Uh, I, I love it whenever you guys bring fresh perspectives. It's what, it's what keeps it fun. Um, 
yeah, uh, it's very possible that that could be part of the story. But whatever whatever happened was he made a heck of a record and ended it with a heck of a song. Yep. So it opened with Thunder Road and ended with Jungle Land. Yeah, talk about <sighs> so talk good about ending on <laughs> on opposite sides of the spectrum. Yeah. Wow. I think this is one of the few, and I, I think there's there might have been more like this, but this is a very distinct like. It's almost like not an intensity, but like an emotional quality, like the like we go from this like hopeful mood like and get more um grounded as we go until we reach the end and it's you know kind of just drops us off mhm it's 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 part of also that um that feeling of hopelessness that i sometimes really love to end sets with yep that that um that feeling of um, the abyss just kind of coming up to swallow you. So you could but, say that uh, Born to Run is a concept record. Yeah, but there are other songs in there that don't oh. fit that story. There's really half of the album does. And it's, it is interesting, though, that it's both sets of side openers and side closers. It's the two songs in the middle of each side that are more standalone songs. Hmm. But they're they're great songs still. There's not a weak song on the album. Well, but um I would say really only those the four Thunder Road, Backstreets Born to Run, Jungle Land, really follow the narrative. And another thing to kind of keep in mind is that he did, he never came out and said, these four songs are meant to be four parts of a larger story. It's just, it's more of when you see them, it's it's impossible to not see how they all lead from one to another. Yeah. Hmm. <sighs> this is a good set, Lucas. So, how do you guys feel after that? I good. am ready for final thoughts. That's what I feel. Yeah, me too. <laughs> we'll go ahead and uh, put an end to this section. And when we come back, we are going to talk about our final thoughts. So stay tuned. Hey, what's up, everybody? It's Ethan. Welcome back to the Good Music Podcast. We just got done listening to our set list for the week from Bruce Springsteen, which was Thunder Road, Prove It All Night, Born to Run, The River, Streets of Fire, and finally, Jungle Land. And so now it's time for our final thoughts. This is just where we um, we kind of take turns sharing kind of how our thoughts changed about Bruce Springsteen or about music in general just as after having such a cathartic experience which if you haven't listened to the Spotify playlist you seriously need to or you're missing a lot of context for, for what we're about to say but usually after going on 
a six song set journey like this it kind of leaves you in a in a place like a mental space to just kind of like reflect and so um grant um after all of our discussion after listening to, through the set uh what are your final thoughts about bruce springsteen well I'll, I'll tell you where i started which was i confused bruce springsteen and rick springfield all the time <laughs> I honestly, that I, I honestly thought that, that Bruce Springsteen wrote Jesse's Girl. My my wife Springfield. said the same thing. I asked right. her, "Can you name a Bruce Springsteen song?" She said, "Uh, Jesse's Girl." Exactly. <laughs> yeah, and I thought that Rick Springfield wrote "Born in the USA" because it wasn't on this set. I was like, "Oh, so it must be a Rick Springfield song, right?" No, but it was yeah, exactly. But it's like it. I had no idea what I was missing out on. I had no idea. And that's one of the things with this podcast. It's like, we talk about obscure people a lot, you know, but we also, we talk about these really big monolithic figures that you really, at least for me, never take the time to understand. I was, I was telling my dad that we were doing a, bruce springsteen episode and he was like bruce i thought this was the good music podcast but (laughs) and i'm glad that he said that after i formed my own opinion about it because now it's like i hate to say this but you know he's a little incorrect you know i i really enjoyed this in the same way that i enjoyed something like sting or David Bowie, where it's like I knew that this artist existed, you know, in a very cosmic sense, but I never gave them a shot. And now that I have, I'm glad that I did. And I'll definitely be, this will definitely be on my um, socially acceptable music playlist. I'll definitely be putting a lot of Bruce Springsteen mental into that list. What? Um, tell me what that playlist is. Well, it's just like <laughs> it's it's from some of the stuff that we've had on this podcast. Did uh, My Chemical Romance make it onto the socially acceptable uh, music well, playlist? Yes, because it's more socially acceptable <laughs> than Death and Dream Theater. And uh, so, uh, oh, list party of playlist play yeah. in front of a normie. Right, the, the kind of music oh, that you're gonna. What is this? Right, the kind of music that you're gonna play with. Uh, Friends in the car. Friends in the car. Yeah, exactly. Who aren't, you know, of the exact kind of music influence that you have. And so, yeah, I definitely think that I'll be listening to more Bruce Springsteen on my own as well. I'm excited to listen to the entire Born to Run album. Usually I'll pick an album. If, if it's an artist that I really, really love, I'll pick an album and, and listen to them after the after the podcast and I think Born to Run is the one because I loved all three songs that we talked about on this podcast from that album and Backstreets is in the top 10 so there you go still got another top 10-er on the album that that I haven't even heard right and so I think it was it was the perfect introduction to a great artist um, that of course I've heard about before. We all have. I think it was just it was a, it was an all around good episode. And I'm glad that we did it. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm going to to say, and not 
not to obviously uh, not to downplay any of the artists that we've ever done on the playlist but i guess for me personally i i'm i would go ahead and say the goal of this podcast is to um obviously to learn and to kind of increase i guess your cultural awareness of more music and more genres um but it's also to hopefully open you up to people that could maybe join the ranks of like some of your favorite bands or to pique your interest. And I'll probably go ahead and say that like Bruce Springsteen, um, like I am, this is probably the first artist that I've been so passionately about. Like after discussing them, I'm like, I, really 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 want to be like to really dive into the bruce springsteen catalog because i've loved Mm -hmm. these six songs so much Mm -hmm. and just him as the person i would say out of all the ones at least that i've been a part of on the podcast bruce springsteen has i mean i mean he's gonna be the like he he is going to make it into a lot of like things in my future a lot of playlists are going to have bruce springsteen on it and so i'm very (laughs) thankful for lucas introducing me (laughs) (laughs) and so yeah i'm just i'm interested in i think what it's just the trifecta almost where it's like you have hit his songwriting is really good the music is really good and then i think just him as a person and his story is really interesting not because he's necessarily really interesting but he's just a guy and so you know he it's like he's just been married 30 years he's just a regular guy he's not super anti-establishment he's not you know going for views or anything and so i just think this this is going to be someone that past doing this episode like i'm going to take the deep deep dive onto the bruce springsteen fandom and so those are my final thoughts i mean i i kind of delved into maybe the psyche of the born to run album really deep in the last segment but i would say my final thoughts are just on this podcast like i guess don't be afraid to listen to to like try out artists it's kind of like you don't know your favorite foods until you try a lot of foods, you know? (laughs) And so I didn't realize that I was going to be such a big Bruce Springsteen fan after the episode was over. (laughs) It's almost like surprised me because now I'm going to, you know, I feel like most people are like Bruce Springsteen. Isn't he like old, you know, but I, but now it's just like, yeah, he's old, but (laughs) that's really good. And so, anyways, less deep final thoughts than usual, but it's. I think it's just because it, it's just a good artist, and so at the end of the day, it's just like guys. We didn't even talk about like, I mean, the string arrangements that he yep. has in these songs. It's just exactly. ridiculous, exactly. and the organs. It's like there's just so much sonic goodness happening, and so in in Don't every way, in in every way, I hope. I hope that I will become more of a Bruce Springsteen fan as we, as 2021 progresses and hopefully in the future. Well, that's literally about as good of an endorsement as you can give. 
about that's that's as good of a final thoughts as I can expect from anyone. I love hearing that. Um, I man, I started in a very strange place with Springsteen because not only what I say I wasn't a fan, I was actually a Springsteen hater for a while. Now, I did this very blindly because um, I usually said all that without ever giving him a serious listen before. Um, I actually mostly had my view found that this is not the first time this has happened. But my dad is not a Springsteen fan. And I think I like passively like through osmosis adopted that view as well just because i didn't want my dad to say well, oh you like springsteen and so i just kind of like blindly hated on him and i remember like the the few times i would hear him pass i was just like see he's he's bad he's got a bad voice or oh i just i think this is annoying but it's just I I realized I had never taken the time to really sit down and listen what's going on. And I remember the first song that I put on when I started because I I saw our the way our Springsteen was requested. I was just like I remember kind of inside just going, gosh dang it, I don't want to do this, but I'm gonna do it. <laughs> and I was kind of hoping for a miracle that just that a band a an artist that I hated, I would turn around and and at least respect. I don't have to love him, but at least I can respect him enough to talk about him nicely. And and I remember I listened to Thunder Road. I put it on and I heard his voice. I was just like, oh, this is going to be so hard. I'm not going to enjoy this. And then the more I started listening, the more I was just like, huh, okay, okay, okay. And I remember I heard the song Born to Run. I was just like, okay, this is starting to really make sense now. And then Jungle, because I listened to the entire Born to Run album first. I was like, this is where I need to start. And then Jungle Land at the very end went on. And then after that, I was just like, okay, I think I've been really wrong this whole time. (laughs) (laughs) And then I started to really just dig into everything else. And I am proud to say that not only am I not a Springsteen hater, but I would say that I am a big time Springsteen fan. Like yeah. it has been a complete one yeah, turn, not just from ambivalence, but from hatred. Someone <laughs> that I would, I have told people there are artists we will never do and Springsteen will be one of them. Wow. And here I am. <laughs> I I can't I kind of can't believe that it's happened. I even I I texted my dad and I I just led with I'm so mad right now. And he said, "Why?" And I said, "Because I'm a Springsteen fan now." <laughs> <laughs> And I was just because I just I thought it would never happen, and I'm I'm really happy. Again, this is this was 
I we've had episodes where I've I've decided to take a risk on artists that I didn't really know much about. This was the first time where I almost like went into something that I expected to hate. And I not only came out liking it, but like hardcore liking it to where I'm just like, I want to like listen to Springsteen all the time. Now. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Like so, you got the true you got the true listener experience. You got the true guest experience here. Exactly. So, this is my message to all you listeners: listen, and I'm not saying this as in a sense to like listen to all our episodes because it gives us more listens. Blah blah blah. I'm talking about in the sense of when you see an artist. Don't listen to it because you think, oh, I don't like that genre. Oh, I've always hated that artist. I'm not going to like this. I'm going to skip this episode. I promise you. And it might not happen every time. But if you take chances and just go in with an open mind, listen to their story, find out who they are as a person and as an artist, understand who their influences are, understand what's behind all the songs i promise you there are going to be times where you're going to have as dramatic of a turnaround as i just had on bruce springsteen this should be like a a model um prototype of what the good music podcast can do for your opinions on music yep so if you're someone that doesn't like heavy metal and you see us put out a heavy metal episode, don't skip it. If you see us put out a jazz episode and you're like, I hate jazz. Don't skip it. You don't know what might happen. Yeah, you... you could have been thinking wrong about that genre or that person this entire time and not even known it. Mm-hmm. And just coming from me, who is an extremely the person when it comes to music this is this was something i would have told you was physically impossible <laughs> um so that's what the podcast is all about it's breaking down the walls there there is good music everywhere so let let this be my testimony so with that also i i do i would i do want to give a Big, big, big shout out because none of this would have been possible if not for Lauren. Yes, thank you so much, Lauren, for requesting this. Um, you and your uncle have a great taste in music. Yes, yes, we are. <laughs> I am very grateful that uh, I got to do this episode because it's it's cool to have such a great turnaround. And, and as I was listening through the set, I was thinking about thinking about it sometimes from like Lauren's perspective, like being in the car with your uncle, you know, mm-hmm. I think that also drove a home. I didn't want to like harp on that too much in the second thing, you know, but coming at it from that, from that perspective, I was just like, dang, it, it hit, it hit a different way. Yeah. Well, that's that's going to be it for this episode. Thank you guys so much for uh, for listening, for supporting us. 
you want to continue to support this podcast, one of the best and easiest ways to do that is to send us artists that you want us to cover. Um, one of our new things that we want to really do this year is to have at least one episode every month be chosen by one of you guys. So um, the first one being Greenstein this month, um, we're going to have um, a uh, request from one of our patrons coming next month. I'm actually in the middle of researching the one that one right now, and it's going to be really fun. And uh, we're just we want to we want to we want to do the artists that you guys want to know about. And the way that we do that is by you telling us. And probably the best way to let us know is to contact us on social media. Um, but you can also, uh, if you leave us a review on whatever platform you're listening on, that is also a way that you can let us know who you want us to talk about. Hmm. and um, yeah so we're going to be definitely keeping an ear out for what you guys want to be hearing about and another way that you guys can support um, this channel is to uh, become a patron we're starting to get some more patrons which is pretty cool and we're going to start to um, think of some more things that we can put on there for you guys as a thank you and as an incentive to uh, to draw more of you guys in. So there's a link in the description of the episode for that as well. And we've got a new episode coming out next week. It is an episode that I've been wanting to do for a long time. And I kept putting it off just because... I kept having other artists that would like grab me in that moment, but uh, we're going to be going to one of the biggest, if not the biggest uh, rock and roll group of all time, which I'm really excited about. So make sure that you stay tuned for that. I'm going to kind of leave you in suspense on what it might be. And uh, that's it. I'm Lucas. I'm Grant. I'm Ethan. Keep on listening to good music. <laughs> <laughs>